The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's turn together into the Word of God in Hebrews 6, 11 through 20. That's page 1004 in our Pew Bibles. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Fathers, we now come before your word, Lord. It's just uh, so obvious to me every time how much I need your help. And we all need your help, Lord, to hear what your word has to say. So we pray now for your Holy Spirit to come. Help me teach this faithfully, clearly, in a way that is beneficial to everyone here. And Lord, most of all, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, each one of us sitting here, Lord, to hear your call, to hear your promises, to hear your assurance, and to see Jesus do this work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking as I prepared this that an important question for modern life is this, who can you really trust? Who can you really trust? Um, Others have said this, and I think it's true, we live in cynical times, don't we? Cynical times. People don't believe they can trust the media. People don't believe they can trust politicians. People don't believe they can trust their doctors. People don't believe they can trust religious leaders. We trust our internet searches, because like, even though, like Abraham Lincoln said, you can't trust everything you read on the internet, but seriously, some of us have learned even from our closest family relationships that you can't trust anyone. We've been betrayed. So in a scenario like this, who's left to trust? Who are you going to trust? Our cultural moment tells us that the only person you can really trust is who? You. Trust yourself. Look to your feelings, your opinions, your points of view. Trust yourself. You have to be your own authority because there's no one else to trust. I was wondering if we we could question that for a moment. Is it a safe option to make self the ultimate Authority. Obviously, you have to trust yourself in some ways. We won't go into that. But the ultimate authority, are you a good option for that? 
I was doing some reading this week on the different American generations, you know, boomers, millennials, XYZ, maybe some of you have heard these things. Well, one study said this, and I want, I want to show you uh, the conclusion of one study I read. Check this out. In the 1950s, only 12% of teenagers identified with this statement. I am an important person. A half century later, it was 80%. That's fascinating to me on so many levels. But let me ask you this question. Do you believe you're an important person or not because it's true that you're an important person or not? or because you've been told that you're an important person or not. That stat tells you you believed it because you were told it. You believed it because you were told it. 12% in the 50s, 80% today, believing deep things about ourselves because our cultural moment has taught us. You know what that reminds me of? I can't trust myself as ultimate authority. I cannot trust myself. I dare not trust myself as ultimate authority. And, and after all, if we're honest, we know this. Have you ever had any deep opinions change as you've gotten older? That means at one point you were very wrong. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you may be wrong about some things even today. You can't trust yourself as ultimate authority. I know you've been lied to. It's hard to trust others. Have you ever lied? You ever led anybody else astray? We can't trust ourselves ultimately. But this is a massive question. It's so important because there's always going to be a vacuum in your heart and your mind for something to trust as ultimate authority. You can't not trust anything. It's not possible. You will get your ideas about what life is about and what life is for from somewhere. You will. You must. The big question is where? Everyone has a source and authority for what they believe and how they live. There's no way to escape it. The big question is this. Is your source trustworthy? Is it trustworthy? And the key to life is finding the ultimate authority the ultimate foundation for what you can trust. What's your foundation? Let me take a step back here and explain why we're doing this. I'm starting a sermon series today, next couple of weeks, going through the mission statement of our church. Let me tell you why I think that's important. I guess some people would ask, why even have a mission statement? Well, what would you say to that? Why have a mission statement? I think the idea of a mission statement is just to give you Kind of two words come to my mind, a compass and clarity. A compass, right? A direction. A mission state statement helps you head in the direction you want to go, the, the way you think is right to go. Remember the right direction. And then clarity. The, the mission statement gives you a clear framework for knowing what to emphasize and work towards. Compass and clarity. I actually think Jesus did something like this. Let me show you. Um, first of all, if you've read the Bible very much, you'll know there's thousands of commands on how we should treat one another. Many, many commands, each one important for wisdom. But someone was, once asked Jesus what he thought the most important command was. This is what Jesus said. It's Matthew 22, 37 to 40. 
Jesus, what's the most important command? Look what Jesus said. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. You see what he just did? This is a mission statement for love. Does he say, oh, you don't need all those commands anymore? No, he doesn't say that at all. We need all of them for wisdom. Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians 13, I need to tell you all about love. Oh, never mind. Jesus said there were only two. No, he gives you this huge chapter on wisdom for love. But Jesus here has summed it up, hasn't he? A mission statement for love, a compass, clarity. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourselves. So someone could say, well, what's the mission for your church? And I guess any faithful church would want to say the New Testament. Yeah? The New Testament. And yet that can be a little hard to uh, digest. There's a lot in there. So in a mission statement, we want to give kind of the emphasis of the New Testament, if we can, encapsulated for our community. A compass, the right way to go with clarity. What should we be pursuing? Now, unlike Jesus' mission statement for love, ours isn't perfect. (laughs) But I think it's helpful. Look at this with me. Here's our mission. What do we want to be? Grounded in the gospel. We gather to grow in the gospel and scatter to spread the gospel for the glory of God. Now, did you notice one word in there that is repeated? Gospel, gospel, gospel. That's really what the Bible's about. That's what the New Testament's about. That's what we want to be about. The good news, the beautiful news of the person and work of Jesus We are angled there. We are looking at that. We are meditating on that. We are wanting to live that out. It's all about Jesus. And so our first step, and what I want to think about with you this morning, is the idea of being grounded in the gospel, a firm foundation on the gospel, your heart planted on the gospel, your core self more and more trusting in Jesus and what he's done. That we believe is what God wants for you. That is what I hope happens to you if you spend any time here at Fountain of Life, that you would be grounded in the gospel. And so now, this morning, I want to show you why that's so deeply biblical. And and I could have tried to do a sermon where I grab from here, there, and everywhere to, to put together a long list. But instead, I just want you to see one place. And what we're going to see here in Hebrews 6 is this firm foundation we can trust in, that source of ultimate authority. And we're also going to see there God's call, his assurance, and his anchor, where he's basically drawing you in to be grounded in the gospel of his son. So that's three things I want you to see in the text today. Number one, God's call. Number two, God's assurance. Number three, God's anchor. So let's plant our eyes here. Hebrews 6. We're going to start with verse verse 11 to 12. A little background. The audience for this letter, um, we know, was facing extreme pressures, pushing them away from trusting Jesus. When When they turned to trust Jesus, they faced persecution from their community. 
They face rejection. Uh, we know some of them have actually faced the loss of their property due to being Christians. I wonder what that, what that would do to you. I wonder if you, um, if you went home today after church and the door was broken open and your living room was empty and the authorities there said, well, we saw you went to a church and worshiped Jesus and we're taking your stuff. And I wonder if there was nothing you could do about it. I wonder what that would do in your heart. And you would wonder what happens tomorrow. And the question would come up in your mind, is Jesus worth it? And then deep in your soul would be this question of, who do I trust the most? Where's my ultimate hope? What do I live for? What do I long for? What am I grounded in? Because if you're grounded in the things of, of this world or the whatever was in your living room or the, what people thought, you're going to head one way. If you're grounded in Jesus, you're going to head another. And so they're facing this question. And look at God's call to this group of people in 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness Earnestness means diligently pursue something, right? Really go after it. And what are we supposed to be earnest about? We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of what? Hope. So what are you supposed to be earnest about? Going after the true, the right source of hope. What is hope? It's the confidence that good is coming. It's the confidence. You're putting your faith in something. So be earnest. Really, he's saying, be earnest about what your heart is grounded in. Be earnest about what your heart is founded on. Be earnest about what you trust in. Did you see the danger they face in verse 12? The author says to them, we don't want you to be sluggish. Don't you love that word, sluggish? A wonderful word. I have not studied this word, so this is no academic anything, but it actually has the word slug in it, which is fantastic, because you've all seen slugs, okay? <laughs> Don't be sluggish. And so, so the word feels like what it means. The Greek word is nothros, which is also another awesome word. And it, it's kind of a discouraged apathy, it's a discouraged apathy. You've been beat up, and you just don't know what to do anymore. And it's the idea of not, it's like a boat with no anchor. You're just floating where the current takes you. The, the word means lazy, dull, stupid, slothful, kind of like a slug melting in the sun. It's like a boat with no anchor, no grounding, nothing solid. And so he says to the church, don't be like this, because... They're discouraged, and it's leading to apathy. He says, no, be earnest. Go after what you're going to hope in. Nail this down. God's call to you is to be grounded. It's his call. Be grounded. And what he's saying is, be grounded on me and my promises. That's what God is saying. Ground your heart, your hopes your future, your deep needs grounded on me and my promises. Quit drifting like a boat with no anchor. 
Now, how do you feel about that? Some of us, we feel, wow, that's awesome that God invites me to trust him like that. Others of us, it might feel threatening because God is saying, put, put all your eggs in the basket of me and my word. And so the question that rises for all of us when we're, when we're called to fully trust God, to surrender, submit, to trust him, the question is this, is he good for it? Can we really trust God with everything? And you know, from the very beginning, this question has lurked. Is God really good? Will he really satisfy you? Can you really trust him with everything? Which is why after this call, God gives the assurance. He wants to assure you that he's worthy of your trust. One way God does that is by helping us learn from those who have gone before. So you see in verse 13, many times in Hebrews, uh, the author is going to bring up the example of um, Abraham and others we can learn about from the scriptures. So God brings up Abraham, and we remember God made this amazing promise to Abraham. I'll be with you. I'll bless you. Go into the land. I'll show you. I'll take care of you. I'll give you protection, provision, land, offspring. Against all odds, trust me. Was it easy for Abraham? No. Was he perfect in trusting God? No. But did God come through on his promises for Abraham in every way? Yes. Yes, when it seemed impossible, God came through. Abraham believed with patience and obtained the promises. Could that be true for you, like it was for Abraham? You might say, what does Abraham have to do with me? Well, let me give you one reason it has a lot to do with you. Look down at verse 17, Hebrews 6, 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. And just stop. Do you see what God wants to do? What does God want to do? He desires to do something. He wants to show that he's good for his, his promises. He wants to give people assurance that he always keeps his promises. He desires to show it more convincingly. He wants to assure you. Wait, who? Verse 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the who? To the heirs of the promise. What does that have to do with you? Everything. Look at Galatians 3.29. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are, who are you? You're Abraham's offspring. Who else are you? You are heirs according to the promise. If you have trusted Jesus, the one of whom all these promises to Abraham are about, if you've trusted him, the promises are yours. You're an heir. You will inherit friendship and the face of God and his kingdom forever. But we need you to make it. We need you to make it all the way through. We need you to not be sluggish 
and float away with no anchor. We need you to earnestly go after that hope to be grounded on his promises. And so when God says, trust me with everything, and you say, I don't know if I can do that, he says, let me show you how good for this I am. And this is what he does. You see that the promises come from the purpose guaranteed by his character. The promises are according to his unchanging purpose and are guaranteed by his character. Number one, did you see God has an unchanging purpose? What's a purpose? Something you intend to do, something you're excited about, something you want to accomplish. God has a purpose, and his purpose is unchanging. What does unchanging mean? It's not that difficult. It doesn't change. But I just want to, I want to set up a contrast with you. Have you ever been really into a purpose and then had that change? Have you ever been really into a, have really into a purpose and never had a change? We change. We change like the wind. Our passion goes up and down. Our direction goes left and right. We're always changing. God is telling you, the reason I make promises to you is because I have a purpose for my people that is absolutely and has always been unchanging. I've known what I wanted to do for my people before the world was made, and I am absolutely, irrevocably, every day and every moment committed to this purpose, and there is nothing that will keep me from achieving my purpose. And my unchanging purpose is the source of my promises to you. What is God's purpose for his people? We could spend a lot of time on this question. I'll just give you two little nuggets that stood out to me. Look at Psalm 65, verse 4. Psalm 65, verse 4. The psalmist is so happy. He's worshiping God with joy. He says, blessed is the one, what? Who's the you? It's, who's the you? Who's choosing? God is choosing. Blessed is the one you choose. And then what does God do with those he chooses? He brings them near. To do what? To dwell with him. In friendship. In hospitality. In fellowship. And then the psalmist says, we will be, what is this next word? It's so sweet. Satisfied. With the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. What is one picture of God's unchanging purpose for his people? His purpose is to bring them near and then to do what? Satisfy them with who he is. That's what he wants to do. Another picture of it, Ephesians 2 verse 7. Just one little nugget. Ephesians 2, verse 7. This is God's purpose for his people. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Just ponder a few of those words. In the coming ages. You know, biblically speaking, we're in an age right now. How long do ages last? A long time. 
Paul here is talking about the coming ages. More than one, many. How long is that? Long. And what does God want to do for ages? He wants to show you immeasurable. What does immeasurable mean? It's too much, man. Immeasurable riches. What does riches mean? Ah. <laughs> Immeasurable riches of his grace, undeserved love, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. If you meditate, you ponder this little verse, what is God's purpose? For his people is to blow you away with his goodness. It's to blow you away with his goodness. And he gives his promises based on the unchangeable purpose he has. And if you won't, no thross, slug out. If you'll... Trust him and be grounded in those promises. Like Abraham, through the ups and downs, through the difficulties, you'll receive the purpose of those promises. Hang in there. Hang in there. Do you hear his assurance? Do you hear his assurance? God is saying to you, trust me with everything. Be careful. Be warned. Uh, make sure you're grounded in my promises and not other stuff. Be grounded in me. Trust me. Well, I don't know if I can. Listen to my assurance. I have an unshakable purpose for my people. That's what these promises are about. Second thing to see. God makes promises based on his unchanging purpose, guaranteed by his character. Did you see the part in there where God took an oath when he was promising to Abraham? And let's remember, God took an oath when, pro when promising to Abraham, ultimately so that we, Abraham's heirs, could see what God did and have his assurance. When God took an oath to Abraham, it was for you and for me. And what's up with this oath thing? God doesn't need to take an oath. Isn't his word just good all on its own? Why do you and I take oaths occasionally? You know, I swear on the Bible. That still happens sometimes, right? I swear on the Bible. Why would we do that? Well, I'm making promises, but I tend to be a flake. And I want you to know this one's over the top. And so I'm going to look to something bigger than me to let you know how serious I am, right? It still even happens in courtroom settings. Swear on something bigger than you so we can know how serious this is. Or you know, I swear on my mother's grave or something. Uh, swear on something bigger than you so we can know you're serious. And so it raises the question, well, if God was going to take an oath and swear on something, what on earth is he going to swear on? Because he's got to find something greater than him. There's nothing greater than him. So what does he swear by, the text tells you? He swears by himself. This is huge. 
This is huge. As God says, as I live, I will do this. He's saying, if I don't come through on my promises that are based on my unchanging purpose, I'm not God. He stakes his godness on his faithfulness. I swear, God says, by who I am, that I keep my promises to my people who trust in me. Why does he do that? He doesn't have to do that. Why does he do that? There's only one reason. So that you might hear his assurance. It's for our weakness. It's for our fear. He says, I'm, I'm staking everything I am on this. My faithfulness to you in my promises. So that you believe. Wow. Of course, uh, you know, you might think, wow, if God breaks a promise, like the universe comes undone or the Trinity unravels or, you know, we'd be in trouble. But of course, we're in no danger. Did you see something about God's character in here? Verse 18, it is impossible for God to what? Lie. You know, there are some things God can't do. I thought God could do everything. Well, we're, not, we're not really talking about that category of power. We're talking here about the category of character. He cannot lie. Do you know how crazy that is? You read about the gods of other religions, and even in many of those accounts, they lie. And I have met a lot of people in this world, and I have never met anyone who is unable to lie. What's a more common sin than lying? I mean, how many of you have lied before? Okay, all right, good. That's most of you. The others, we're wondering about you. Okay? And then don't raise your hand. We don't want to incriminate the guilty. A hundred times? A thousand times? A million times? And you know what? So, you know what so many of them are? They're the little slight things just to put us in a little bit better of the spotlight angle. And we're looking at a God here. This is the only one to ever exist of whom this is true. He never has. He never will. He cannot. It is impossible for him to lie. He has no need to lie, and he has no desire to lie. And he is strong enough to where there won't even be a mistake on what he says. Everything he says is pristine, crystal clear, faithful, and true. He makes his promises to you based on his unchanging purpose for you, which is guaranteed by his character, which is absolute, utter integrity and faithfulness. I asked you earlier, what's the one thing you could safely trust. And the only answer to that is the God of the Bible. It's the God of the Bible. By the way, that's why we love the Bible so much, isn't it? That's why we love the Bible. Because here we can see truth. Written over 1,500 years, various authors, language, cultures, one unified story, promises made, promises kept, no contradictions, no lies, inspired by the one who cannot, will not lie. It's true. 
believe it. So we've, we've heard God's call. What is he saying? Plant your heart on me and my promises. Be grounded, your hopes, on me and my promises. And then he says, let me give you an assurance so that to help you do this, look how I've been faithful to people in the past. Look at my unchanging purpose for my people. Look at my unfailing character. I swear by myself I'll keep my promises to those who trust in me. That should give you a, a boost. His call, his assurance, but finally, his anchor. His anchor. We need an anchor. What are anchors? First of all, they just look awesome, don't they? If I was ever going to get a tattoo, it has to be an anchor. <laughs> they look awesome. They hold your boat fast to a safe place. I took Judah deep sea fishing the other day, and I was reminded of the importance of an anchor when the waves are a little steep and the current's a little strong. An anchor needs to be strong. It needs to be fastened to the right place. What happens if there's no anchor? There's instability, there's drift, there's danger. You go where you did not want to be. Now, of course, the author of Hebrews is worried about the anchor not for your boat, but for your soul. Your soul needs an anchor. Your soul longs for an anchor. Again, it's that idea of what are you going to trust? Where is your hope? Our souls long for an anchor. What does your heart need? I know a few things your heart needs. My heart needs it too. Your heart needs joy. Where are you going to find a satisfaction that lasts? You're always looking for joy, and you're always trusting this, that, or the other thing in hopes of finding that joy. Where's the ultimate? Your heart longs for joy. Number two, your heart, your soul needs righteousness. And that gets at this idea. What makes you good enough? What makes you acceptable? What gets you in. Oh, we strive for that. We long for that. We put out all this stuff. Does this do it? Does that do it? Where are you going to hope in? What's your anchor for your righteousness? Number three, your soul needs hope. Hope. What guarantees a good future? Need an anchor. And God has provided an anchor. There's a link from your guts, your soul, to him and his promises that holds you to him, that holds you to what he said. Think of the strength of this anchor. We have an anchor for the soul. The author says it's sure and steadfast. It's trustworthy. You can count on this. It's stable. It's reliable. No matter the storm or the waves on top, the grounding and the founding is going to hold. Think of the placement of this anchor. Did you see that this hope, this anchor, has entered into the inner place behind the curtain? What does that mean? Sounds strange. Well, the author's Jewish audience would have known, right? He's referring to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or in the temple. The very presence of God was there. There was a veil that kept you out. You can't go in there. And why can't you go in there? Well, old school, you'll die if you go in there, okay? Even only the high priest could go in. You remember how often? 
once a year, and I think I remember he had to wear bells on his ankles and a rope tied to his leg. And why? We want to hear the twinkling to know you're still moving. And then if you quit moving, we're going to yank you out. Because even the high priest of Israel is in danger of death in the holy place because he's a sinner. Reminds us, doesn't it? Reminds us. Due to our sin, we're cut off from a holy God. His holiness is dangerous for us because we deserve his judgment. Like as the unfaithful, hypocritical liars we tend to be. When our hearts are no, honest, we know this. Have you, remember Jesus' commands again, the mission statement of love? Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? No. Has you, have you loved your neighbor as yourself? I know you're thinking of the four or five times where you tried, and that's awesome. I want you to think of all the other times. I, I can't go into this room. I cannot go into this room. On my own, I'm unhinged, and I'm left without an anchor. And yet, listen to what the author here is saying. Somehow, you and I, have, as sinners, can be anchored in, not to just like the edge of the front yard of God's place or, you know, leaning into sort of close. No, you and I can be anchored behind the veil, which means into the holy face of God, right? He doesn't, is he saying you need to be literally anchored to an ancient religious site? No, you can be anchored into the reality those things symbolized. The living room of God, the throne room of the Father. You anchored in there. How can this be? It's because of who the anchor is. Who the anchor is. The author here calls him the forerunner. What's a forerunner mean? It means he goes first and we follow. He goes first and we follow. He went first. He went where we couldn't go. He lived a perfect life. He's the only one to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. He did it. He is the righteous one. He's the perfect one. And yet where did he go? He went to the cross. He went to the cross, and there he is dying and taking upon himself the wrath of God. Not for his life. His life is perfect and worthy of praise. It's, it's righteous. But he's doing it as a substitute. For who? For you. For me. He's paying for my sins. And he did so effectively. They are functionally paid for. They're not on God's mind as justice he needs to uh, repay. It's taken care of. And to vindicate what Jesus did, what did he do on the third day? He rose from the dead. He's done it. He's accomplished it. Our forerunner, look at Hebrews 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Look at what the text says about Jesus. Just soak this in. He is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you have some time this afternoon, open this verse up and just think about this. Who is this man? The radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Are we talking about another good teacher with some good advice for you? That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. We are talking about the Son of God fully divine. Moreover, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This text says the reason your heart is being is beating right now is because Jesus is saying, beat. The reason your brain is firing the things it does, because Jesus is saying, fire. The reason the gravity's fine-tuned and the planets are turning and the, and the tides and the what have you is because Jesus is saying, that's the one who after making purification for sins, what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does it mean to sit down at the right hand? It means a lot of things. It means, number one, you're the man, okay? <laughs> like, you're the, you're the king. You're the preeminent one. It also means it's finished. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? It's finished. What was finished? Everything you need to get you from sinner to kindness lavished on you from ages and ages to come was finished. God accomplished his purposes in Christ. And he, this person, is your anchor. The anchor for your soul. The author of Hebrews says, we who have fled for refuge can have strong encouragement. How do you get, can you imagine the hook of this anchor? How do you get this thing like latched on right here? The anchor for your soul to where, where he goes, you get, you know, can you feel the tug? You get pulled into where he goes. How do you get latched on? Run to him for refuge. You run to him for refuge. You're believing God's word, the truth, the reality that I'm, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I can't find my joy, my meaning, my purpose, my hope alone. I, I need the anchor. Save me. Have mercy on me, oh God. You know what the spirit does? This is a whole doctrine in the New Testament called unification with Christ. As you trust Jesus, you get baptized into him. The, the hook is set in your heart never to be broken. And you must go where he has gone. You must follow. You'll die with him. You'll rise with him. You'll sit with him. You will reign with him. And you enjoy the lavish love of God with him forever. He's the anchor. You may have noticed he's, the, he's a priest according to the uh, order of Melchizedek. If you want to stay until one, I can unpack that for you. 
I'm just going to say this. It means he's the perfect priest forever. The perfect priest forever. Which means when he brings you into God's presence, you're in. When he, were, when he offered himself on the cross, you're forgiven. When he, when he intercedes for you to the Father, that prayer is heard. He's the anchor that won't break forever. Forever. And there we find what we need. Church, where's our joy? Rejoice. We did Philippians not too long ago, do you remember? Rejoice where? In the Lord. When? Always. He's our joy. Who's your righteousness? How do you know you're good enough? Fast enough, smart enough, young enough, old enough, wise enough, successful enough? No, that's not enough. How do you know you're enough? What, get, what makes you enough to be in God's presence? There's one thing and one thing only. Who's your righteousness? Jesus. I'm enough in him. And who's your hope? How do you know good things are coming, no matter how rotten this life will feel sometimes? How do you know? Where's your assurance Jesus, he's the anchor. This is exactly what we mean by grounded in the gospel. I mean, what's the difference between grounded in the gospel and anchored to Jesus? It's the same, and this is God's call for you. Don't be sluggish, hoping in this, hoping in that, apathetic discouragement slothful, not knowing what to do. Be earnest to anchor into the hope God has anchored you into. Be grounded in him. Find what your heart, your mind, your soul needs in Jesus, who he is and what he's done. He's your anchor. He's the one. Be grounded in the gospel. That's God's call. He gives assurance that his promises come from his unchanging purpose, guaranteed by his character. And he latches you onto his anchor, his very son. Let's flee to him for refuge now and forever. Let's be grounded in the gospel. That's our mission. Amen? Is it yours? Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful that we actually could be grounded in you, that we actually could be attached to you, that you actually would bring us into the presence of the Father. Oh, who is like you, O oh God, so faithful, so true. We give you glory, Lord, for your kind purpose to us to satisfy your people in your presence. And Lord, we want to trust and believe your promises, that they are true. So we come to you again with humility. We flee to Jesus for refuge. Maybe some of us, it's for the first time. We realize that we've been uh, nice-ish and religious-ish, but we've been hoping in ourselves or what we've done. And maybe right now we're realizing we need the real anchor, the true anchor. So I pray for that person, Lord, that they would put their trust in you and you alone, your life, your death, your resurrection, and find that they are latched on now to the Father in heaven. And Lord, for those of us who believe that already, let us be earnest to keep putting our hearts there, to keep placing our dreams and desires there, our joy, our righteousness, our hope, in one place, the person and the work 
of Jesus Christ as we see in your word. Do that in us more and more forever and ever so that through patience and faith we will inherit the promises and be satisfied in your face forever. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.